building digital capacity for the arts. Um, would you like to take a seat? Can I ask Naomi and Sarah to come up as well? And we have um, a little time for questions and discussion. Before we do that, does anybody here want to claim this? Must be somebody who's left, so we'll sort it out later. Um, I thought your final point about get something in there about digital archive right from the start is really important. And within the BBC, there's a project going on around existing contracts as they're being revisited, trying to renegotiate and also ensuring that new contracts are done in the light of the things that digital makes possible. Uh, but as you say, it's an incredibly sensitive area and I can see how hard you had to work uh, just to get this clump of stuff made available. It, it, I mean, the result is incredibly impressive, but as you say, there are things you can't do that you might have wanted to. And, and obviously, as you move forward, more and more organisations are going to face that. And I think there is this desire sometimes in all of our parts just to, to wish the whole rights issues away, just to wish that it wasn't there. But it is, and it is and remains important. And even with the, the Hargreaves review and the acceptance of those recommendations in the UK, with what's happening within the EU and elsewhere, it's going to be, you know, there will always be the need to deal with the creators of the work and ensure that their rights are respected. And so learning best practice around that right at the start is clearly the way forward. And it becomes, as you said, a process, something that you do that just becomes part of the practice. So I'm happy to now take any questions that anyone's got to any people. If you can wait, there's a microphone just around here. Hello, I'm, can you hear? Yes. Geraldine Morris. Um, and at the moment I'm in the process of working with the Royal Ballet and Royal Opera House putting some material online. And um, I just wondered what the situation is with for instance, a lighting designer or a dancer whose work probably wasn't copyrighted, wouldn't have been at the time, they're now dead. Do I still need to think about rights in connection with them? Who'd like to take that trivial question? <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I think we we'll probably share this one, won't we? Um, I, I, um, <clears throat> uh, copyright's automatic um, when a work is created. So it depends on what they've cre what, 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 what is it that's been what's been created. What's what have they actually done? Well, um, as you can imagine, it's a little bit vague at the moment because I'm still raising the funding. But it's actually material to support a book, which I'm just completing. And what I want to do is to put sections of the dances that I discuss in the book online. Uh, initially, I thought of a DVD, but I think it's got to be online now. Uh, copyright is fine in terms of the owners of the works. Uh, in terms of the dancers, the Opera House just asked me to contact the dancers, and that's a separate thing, most of whom I know, okay. um, one of which is me, so that's all right, <laughs> I've given permission. Uh, the music publishers I have also uh, contacted. It, the lighting design, the designer's dead in a particular work. Um, 
the the actual stage design. I know who the designer is. He's dead. Could but I his, just yeah. Move okay. Okay. Uh, so that that's it. I just want to know what the lighting designer situation is. Experience there. I think I think to be honest, I don't want to dodge the question, but it is very detailed, and so that's kind of where you need help, kind of going through it item by item. Just one thing to say is um, you probably need to look at the length of copyright in each type of work because it lasts a different duration of time for each type. And some are triggered by the death of the author, some aren't. Um, so you'd need to look at what is still in copyright and what isn't. Um, and just because somebody's dead, it doesn't mean that the copyright has expired. You then need to find out if it's gone to the estate and if you deal with the estate. So it's quite a convoluted Fine. That's task. really yeah. helpful. <laughs> there was never going to be a specific answer, but in fact, it's a very rich answer. Thanks. Um, sorry, who's next? Oh, sorry. Hold on, could you wait for the microphone so we can record it? Thank you. I hope this is quick and easy. I just wanted to know, when you drafted a document to say that you have to apply to enter part of the site to use it because it's work in progress or rehearsal material. What did you say to the artists about this, legally, as it were? Um, legally, we dealt with the point, as I said, in a very blanket way. They just waived their moral rights, which is what they needed to do to enable the archive team to be able to select, cut, edit, do what they want, throw that bit on the floor, put that bit in, put that, in pink, put that in blue. So the legal document was just very straightforward. The contributors had no right to challenge it, to call up and say, I don't like the way you've done that bit. That's my bad side. Can you show my other side? Um, so what we gave were very practical assurances on who was doing that work. And, and that was the way we got them comfortable. That's where the trust came. Yeah. I think there is an alternative, actually, than waiving moral rights. And I, 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 I think that, um, particularly in the spheres that I work in, in the public sector, moral rights are important to creators. The right to be attributed is really, really fundamental and sometimes more important than getting money back. And I think the right um, to retain the ability to control how a work is treated is important. And another alternative that you can do instead of asking for wavering of moral rights is asking for consent to do X, Y and Z. And asking for consent means that they retain their moral rights, but you've told them how you're going to treat the work. And I just think that there is a balance. It's, it's not so straightforward as wavering moral rights. I think, it, I think there is a balance that needs to be achieved, and I think that recognition is really important when you're dealing with artists. It's a matter of respect yeah, all totally. the time. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to add anything to that, Sarah? Mm. I don't think, I mean, well, just one quick thought, which is sort of connected but not quite, is that, of course, in, in, in one's efforts to try to ensure that you, you approach everybody in the right way and you, and you find everybody, you can't possibly ever find everybody. And there is that moment where you sort of draw breath when you press the launch button and think, you know, who's going to now phone me up and try and sue me? Um, and there are two things. That, first of all, probably nobody probably would sue us because we haven't got any money to, you know. But also, actually, nobody has. Uh, the only people who've contacted us are those who said, we're not on the archive. Where are we? So there's that sort of fear that you, that you go into a world that's going to be problematic. And actually, when people see the quality you know, of what's out there, they want to be part of the party. They don't want to remove themselves. So okay. it's just... Let's hope that's true for all of your archives. Uh, Andrew. Uh, and from the Arts Council. Um, Sarah, particularly you, but, but, but perhaps um, uh, uh, Nemi and Cassandra too. Um, 
at the beginning, we had um, Roly Keating talking about blurring the boundaries of archives. And I think that's fascinating because in a way, that's sort of where we're going. But what we've been hearing this afternoon is about an extraordinary, incredible work, incredible um, uh, archive that's accessible where it's been sort of shaped by artists. But it feels as though it's probably got quite a hard line around it, particularly quite cased in, quite insular, in the sense that, and that sounds sort of outrageous when, obviously, we're talking about years of extraordinary practice. But where is the, did you allow for the possibility of the blurring of the boundaries with other dance archives, with linking to them, so that the user can move seamlessly from the Siobhan Davis archive into other archives? And of course, that has a rights kind of issue, potentially, I would imagine, given the kind of very useful, detailed material and, and information we've been hearing. But it seems as though, looking to the future, we're, we're both recognizing the need to create um, uh, uh, archives that come from a particular place, are shaped in a particular way, and, and, write, and, and correctly go through the rights process. But at the same time, we actually want them to connect for the user across a wider dance, say, dance landscape. So you've created a, a beautiful island. Mm. Well, th there's always the worry that when you, because when, when, when we were working on this, there really weren't any other dance archives, or you know, hardly any out there. So, so the risk of that, first of all, you can't say, well, let's now join up with everything else, because there isn't any everything else to join up with. But also, then you run the risk of becoming a kind of monolith, you know, or something which is then, everybody looks to that is the, the solution to how we archive. So we didn't want any of, you know, we didn't want that to be. We just wanted this to be one of many. Others are, are slowly coming out. Um, but of course, yes, we want that. And part of the Digital Dance Archives project, which I mentioned quite quickly, is this portal which does take you to different dance collections and you can search across different dance collections. Of course, that still depends on those other collections being digitized and being available. And in time, hopefully, that portal will grow. Um, but, but also, I mean, this is why Jake's project is so exciting, because, because what we're interested in all the time, and we're looking, particularly with this archive, is to, to make sure that it is found and searched within other kinds of collections. It doesn't mean to say that the, the assets will shift. They'll still be here in the archive, but people can find them and discover them. Tell us about your data things. model. Go on, I want to hear, even if they don't. What's your underlying data model? Oh, God. What, I'm not... <laughs> in, in what sense? I mean, well, as, as in, is there a representation <laughs> of the, the metadata that describes each yeah. of the clips and stuff like that? Yeah. There, there's an architecture to that yes. which allows you to identify a dancer as an artist, yes. as a member of a company. All that information yeah. is stored there and drives the website. And available to see. Yeah, and available to see. Is it available to be interrogated by computers from other people? No. Not yet, but it will be. Uh, it could be. Okay. And Dublin Core is is a metadata schema, as in <laughs> it's it's a what's called an ontology. It's an attempt to define the world in a number of categories into which things can be dropped, yeah. so that you can share information across different institutions and different organisations. Yeah. One way of doing it. There are many others. Yeah. You want a standard? It's great. There's always another ten or fifteen coming along next week but they are there. So what we see here becomes part of the broader digital public space yeah. through the accessibility of the data Absolutely. eventually. And some of the projects we've been working on has been looking at sort of aggregation models and so on. So, so, yeah. so, so it is possible, even if it's not being done yet, and even if the rights would not allow the free availability of the underlying assets. But yeah. that's a yeah, no, separate that's right. question. Yeah. Uh, there was a question here from Adrian at the back and then... Hi, uh, Adrian Ruth from the BBC. 
Um, Sarah, you talked about when you're building the archive, you wanted to make it as open as possible and available to as many audiences as possible. Uh, have you, did you, have you built in sort of budget for audience research to try and find out who is actually using it? Do you get feedback on uh, the quality, what, what, what they think of it, etc.? As part of the initial funding period, the HRC project funding, um, it wasn't specifically built in. We did the user testing, so of course we got a lot of use, useful information back from that. Um, but the GISC project, the DTraces project, was really important in being able to do some focus work on finding out who's using it, what they're, what they're doing with it. And I think David showed um, our, um, our blog, our project blog, and there's a, there's an imp a user impact analysis report up there which is quite detailed, and it's been drawn on for um, a GIST project, um, a GIST report, uh, Splashes and Ripples, um, which also tells the story within a broader report on um, user, uh, user engagement with different um, archival resources. And so are the groups as wide as you expected? Is it, is it well, as I mentioned, I mean, I only touched on it very briefly, but the very fact that, that we're going into 90 different countries, where Sue's work has never been seen in most of those countries, but now we've got audiences for dance and audiences for Davis that is worldwide and people telling us that they're finding the archive and we've, we've found blog sites where people are talking about the archive, discussing the archive, um, whether they're technology experts or they're dance experts. Um, so it's anecdotal, it's not, um, it, well some of it's been very carefully um, analysed through this uh, rapid analysis uh, report we did. But it's, it, all of these things take time and resources, and they're really hard to do. And one of the things that was quite disturbing, in, it, for any of you who know about the REF, you probably don't, and you're lucky, it's a research excellence framework which all universities have to engage in. And, and uh, I've done a case study report around the archive because it tells a really clear story about impact, you know, what this archive has had impact beyond the academy, I mean, beyond the academy. But one of the, the, the feedback I got was, yes, you should be doing this user impact analysis every year. And my response is, well, give me the money. Because actually, these kinds of exercises are terribly important. But they're actually very they're time consuming. And they need resource to do them. Um, so I don't know if that's answered it. Yeah. But, um. And, and yeah, never underestimate the, the political importance of anecdata. You know, you no, can, absolutely. So it's useful yeah. to have, yeah, even, no, even if it's not as robust as you Yeah, and want. I'm collecting like mad, you know, the archiv <laughs> archivist in me is sort of collecting. Right. There was somebody, oh yes, there you are. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Rebecca Sinker from Tate. Um, I've got two questions, I hope that's okay. Um, one is, is there a JISC model in the pack or website that you've talked about for user-generated content and in the assignment of rights from... Um, materials contributed by users through crowdsourcing and other means to um, that kind of more open and permeable model of okay. digital archives. And your second question? And my second question is about when you are commissioning artists to interact with and create new uh, creative works from materials that are themselves creative works, what are the issues, particularly the moral rights issues in... in um, kind of cutting up and uh, collaging in various media with existing creative works? Right, and so, how so do you get around that? So completely straightforward questions that, that go to the heart of the debate about contemporary culture. Who'd like to step in? I can say about the GISC um, uh, <coughs> toolkit, there is a template um, terms and conditions for user-generated content. <coughs> I, I have given some URLs to um, the Arts Council and it'll be on the URLs, including uh, one for the learning module. 
So you can use that and you can take these terms and conditions which have been, work, have, have been developed um, in partnership between lawyers and practitioners like myself um, and you can uh, customise them and adapt them and make them your own. So that's, that's a straightforward answer. Um, there's also a project called Web2Rights, um, www.web2rights.org.uk and we, it was a JISC funded project and we looked very much at the IP and legal issues um, <coughs> excuse me, that generated um, or, or came about as a result of engaging with the web. So you've got, there's a whole tranche of stuff on that as well. Um, commissioning. Um, <coughs> if, if an artist is taking a pre-existing work and cutting it, and that work is in copyright, then it's, it's very, very probable that there would be moral rights issues associated, associated with it. And I think the issue for me would be who has responsibility for clearing the rights? And how do you build that into the contract? And how do you have those discussions? So it would be, is the artist going to take responsibility for clearing those rights? <coughs> is it going to be the commissioning party? having discussions, making sure that people are happy with whatever discussion you come up with. And in a way, that's more important, the sort of who is doing it and when are they doing it and how are you going to communicate that and agree it than actually whether they waive, waive moral rights or not. So it's just it's making sure that is discussed. <coughs> but certainly it would be an issue that, would need to be <coughs> that needs to be dealt with. I mean, Cassandra, can I ask... With Siobhan Davis Dance Company, yeah. obviously the archive grows, there's more material being made. Are new contracts now being written in the light of what you've delivered so far? I'm told they are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so these things become more possible with material that's being made today because it's being created and contracted in a position, in a, on a basis that this will happen. Of course, the past still would need to be resolved, I imagine the stuff you're finding all the time that you can't use? Uh, it's possible. I mean, actually, we've been able to use m most of what we found um, in the past. I mean, one thing that we did think is we would be deluged with contributions. And, and that's the other thing to bear in mind, is that we made a lot of contacts where people came to us offering us content, which we said, yes, please, yes, please. And then it never arrived. And then you sort of go around and knock on the door and things like that. And that takes a lot of time as well. It's actually to, to prize out of people their content. Um, and it, and it, shows, it shows up some really interesting kind of relationships people have with their staff, you know, and how people are prepared to, to make an offer, but actually what happens in that giving or donating or lending or loaning, you know, so that's complicated in itself. You're dealing with real people, with real stuff, and how they have a relationship with that stuff. So a lot of what we were promised didn't actually materialise. Some did, right. but not all. Um, any more questions? If not, then I'd like to thank Cassandra and Naomi and Sarah for your, your time, your expertise, um, <clears throat> and for, for giving us something to play with and to look at that is actually very beautiful. And I'm not just talking about your framework. <laughs> Don't forget to share and bookmark our podcasts. Video and audio is available from all our seminars and masterclasses at artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. That's artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. Building digital capacity for the arts.
You've been listening to a podcast download from Arts Council England and BBC Academy.